0: Hello and welcome to 10x9, 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn, and this is the 10x9 podcast. There are three new stories on this podcast for you, all told at different times with different themes, but all with a medical flavour and honouring the people who look after us when we're most in need.
1: I began to cry again. I think it was the relief of not being in trouble and the softness of her southern accent.
2: Mum and me were completely oblivious when we were hit at high speed by a boy racer. Our car was crushed to half its size. Because we were hit from behind, our airbags didn't deploy.
3: We caught up with Bosco at the bus stop. His pale bare ass shining like a beacon in the fading light of a late winter afternoon.
0: So, all in a day's work for hospital staff, a four year old who wants to go home to his mummy, an horrific car crash attended by an heroic doctor, and a patient on the run with surgical gown of flapping. Okay, let's get the pulses racing and get started. First timer Jim McGrath told this story in March at the Black Box when the theme was good. And just to explain, Jim had a condition known as Perthes disease, which affects young, developing hip bones. Take it away, Jim.
1: My first memory as a child was playing on the green in the council estate known as the Mehta. The Mehta to Newry people because it was built on Rooney's Meadow or Rooney's Mehta as we would call it. It was a 1940s build with indoor toilets. It offered new new homes in a new era to new families. Us, the McGraths. The McCanns, McGuigans, McCulloughs, Kigneys, O'Hanlons, Hoggies, and the Murphys. These and many more family names made up the meta community, tight to this very day, 70 years later. My first memory of hospital was looking out the window of a ward which was to become my home for the next year. With my eyes, I followed a black car as it drove off, driven by my uncle, carrying my mother, father, and my sister Elizabeth. It drove through the grounds of the hospital, and as I watched it through tears of confusion and fear, it disappeared on its onward journey south, back to Newry. That fear increased. Added to it was a sense of abandonment. The comforting words of a nurse didn't comfort, nor did the kindness in her eyes as she smiled. I don't think I'll stay here. I want my mummy. And I began to sob. You want to get better, don't you? She said, and we have the cure. She then pulled me towards her and I cried into the crevice of her shoulder and into her starched and clean uniform. Covered in tears and snot, she looked down and jokingly said, Now, look what you've done. It's a good job I'm off duty soon, or matron would have my guts for garters. I began to sob again, only this time using her left shoulder, (laughs) just to balance the mess that I left on the right. The anonymous nurse then sent me into bed, and went about her other duties before leaving for home. Before she did, she came back to say goodbye and told me that she'd see me in a day or two. For the second time in one day, for the second time in my four years of existence, I felt alone and lost. I fell asleep that night, exhausted, and woke the next day to find bed guards up to prevent me from falling out of that bed. Nurses walked past with bedpans in hand. Some pushed metal trolleys carrying all sorts: bowls of water, towels, and strange contraptions that I'd later know off by heart—blood pressure machines, thermometers, stainless steel kidney-shaped bowls, and bedpans. I began to climb over the bed guards when a nurse came rushing over. Get back into that bed. She yelled. Confused, I complied. I need to go to the toilet. Well, you'll need to wait. Can't you see we're busy? I waited quietly and waited some more. When I tried to get a nurse's attention, I was told to wait some more. Eventually, I could wait no longer and proceeded to wet the bed. As I sat in the puddle of urine, and soaked pyjama bottoms, I sobbed silently. The humiliation, and not knowing if I'd done something wrong. Now, young man, it's your turn, said the nurse as she approached the bed. I said nothing. Let's get you ready for the doctor. Oh dear, did we have a wee accident? Sure, we'll get you all sorted, no harm done. I began to cry again. I think it was a relief of not being in trouble, or maybe it was the kindness and the understanding shown and the softness of her southern accent. I'm Nurse Malone. And what's your, your, your name, young man? Jim. Jim, is it? And do you have a second name, Jim? I don't know. You don't know. Well, let's find out, will we? Nurse Malone took a metal clipboard from the bottom of the bed and announced proudly, you do indeed. It's McGraw. It's James Gerard McGrath. It's not. <laughs> it's Jim, like my daddy. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll write it down here pointing at the board, that you like to be called Jim. How's that? So I just nodded my approval. I waited in the bed with the guards up until the consultant came to examine me. He was surrounded by student medics and they were mostly silent unless they were asked for an opinion. An officious woman stood beside the consultant. She was a matron. She read from the notes... My name, date of birth, admission date, and diagnosis. My pyjama bottoms were then removed, and naked from the waist down, I was examined in front of a dozen strangers. The result of that examination was that I was to lie in bed, leg elevated, weights attached, to stretch it for the next 52 weeks. Allowed out only to get a bath once a week. It was going to be a long year. That year was made longer by the lack of visits from my parents. My father worked as a labourer and could only visit on a Sunday. My mother, to begin with, took the long journey on a Wednesday by bus from Newry. The bus took her through Lock Bricklin, Bambridge, Dromore, Hillsborough, Hillsborough, Lisburn, Dunmurray, and then to Belfast, almost two hours. When she arrived, she, with the rest of the parents, would wait until they were granted entry to the ward. Visiting time was from 2 to 2.45. But if the ward wasn't ready, if it wasn't clean, the time was shortened. There were occasions when she only got to see me for 15 minutes. It took her five to six hours of travel on average her whole day for that 15-minute visit. She would walk away from my bed crying every time, her five-foot frame shaking from the pain of leaving. Hunched over and catching her tears in her hanky, she would leave without looking back. She stopped coming in on a Wednesday. And 50 years later, she would still recall the pain that she felt, leaving my child. And her tears would flow again. Sunday was different. My mother and my father would get a lift from a relative and they stayed outside because only two people were allowed to visit at any one time. My siblings couldn't visit because children weren't allowed to visit on the children's ward. On one occasion a nurse snuck my sister in on condition that one of my parents sat outside. The exception to children visiting was at Christmas time, when one by one my siblings, Pat, Joe, Mary, and Elizabeth, played relay with visiting time, each getting five minutes each to come in and say hello and wish me a Merry Christmas. My mother sat crying for the whole visit, and to this day I still feel the guilt that I felt then because I just want the visit to end. Not because of my own sadness but because I was bored, I didn't know these people and in the 8 months that I'd been there I'd forgotten my siblings. People came and people went, patients, staff, visitors, I was the only constant. My institutionalisation ended in May 1966, new treatment meant I could go home and so I left my temporary home in a calibre and a club boot. I arrived at a different house. My parents had moved to another housing estate, not as tight-knit as the meta. It was more anonymous, rows of grey 60s terraces. No green to play on, no soul. They moved because my mother couldn't live with the grief associated with the other home. So how did it impact on me? Well, the good, the bad, and the very best. I'm weary of people to begin with, but I can establish relationships quickly. These can be meaningful, but as soon as those relationships end, I don't feel the need to keep in contact. I can be sociable in crowds, but need space when it gets too much. And on the surface, I appear to be an extrovert, but in reality, I'm an introvert. I blend into a crowd, say little, and observe a lot. I read people quickly, and it developed an intuition that has helped me with my work within the child protection field. I've spent the last 25 years helping children remain within their family network. This is born from my lived experience.
0: Thanks so much, Jim, and what wonderful memories and supportive medics. I hope you'll be back with us soon. And if, like Jim, you've got a story to tell, then get in touch at 10 9com or contact us through our social media channels, the usual places, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. OK, on to our next story, and it's an incredibly powerful account of a terrible car crash, but it's uplifting and positive, and was told in November at the Roe Valley Art Centre in Limavady. The theme was secrets and lies. No relation to our previous speaker. Here's Mark McGrath.
2: When lives are changed by a serious car accident, it is not for the better. I'm still amazed at how the brain reacts at the moment of impact. Mum and me were completely oblivious when we were hit at high speed by a boy racer. Our car was crushed to half its size. Because we were hit from behind, our airbags didn't deploy. In the moment of impact, the brain creates a fantasy. It feels like a trip to limbo in old religious territory. That sudden impact still exists in a grey area for me today, somewhere between a heavenly secret and the comforting lie of a seriously injured mind. In that limbo, I'm still sitting in the car with Mum. Outside the window is the most perfect summer day, suspended in time. Mom turns and smiles at me. Will we just go home? The air resolves around us. A strange blue light appears in my peripheral vision. It is moving in circles, coming down from the sky. Okay, Mum, let's go home. A hard yellow wall of metal appears around the blue light. It is the back of an ambulance that has just arrived at the scene. I have the strangest recollection of these moments, as if my eyes are three quarters closed, and I can only see the sudden small crowd of people around me from the neck down. Well, most of them. Dad and my youngest son Luke are there. I see their ashen faces. Luke was nine years old at the time and the only reason he's alive is because he told me that he wanted to stay with his granddad instead of going to mass. I still feel physically sick for asking him if he wanted to come with me and mum. Mum isn't so lucky. She's crushed up against the steering wheel. I have a surreal memory of a moment where she turns to me in the wreckage. Call your daddy. I can't die without seeing your daddy. Then her eyes roll up in her head, and she makes this siren-like noise of biological protest that signals the end of her life. I want to believe that this is a lie, and not a nightmare memory that a fractured brain fashions and thinking back. But I remember stumbling out of the wreck and ringing Dad. I remember telling him that we've been in a car accident. It's bad. We need help. I see Dad standing beside me with my son, Look who still has upsetting thoughts to this day as he fully absorbs the sheer violence of the crime scene. I know it plays in his mind. It does mine. Although I have the the grim gift of concussion to leave merciful gaps in the gory detail. Luke saw a mum, dead or dying, behind the stairway. Such are the things we don't talk about as we push it into the recesses of an unremembered hell. It's hard to believe that what I've just told you could be considered life changing in a good way. I mean, surely I would have to be lying. Well, what if I said that a consultant was on his way to work in the hospital and then he witnessed the accident at the moment of impact? That he rushed over and found mom with her heart stopped, crushed up behind the steering wheel with multiple injuries, including a broken back, broken ribs, nerve damage, multiple internal bleeds? What if I told you that he nonetheless worked a miracle in the moment to get mom's heart started again? Or if I told you that mum was airlifted to the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast and spent three months in ICU, that she survived in a drip, writhing in agony between bursts of morphine, months of painful, complex rehabilitation, a slow but beautiful resurrection from the moment of no return. Somehow this incredible woman walks among us today, albeit with a steel rod in her spine. Mum is a devoutly religious woman Her return to us is the miracle of a modest revival and the loving eyes of a deity that science looks beyond. As much as I love Carl Sagan, I'm pretty much with mum on this one. Other more surreal moments of the accident come back to me with more levity than I might reasonably expect. There's the memory of wandering the roadside through a small crowd of onlookers before the paramedics put me on a stretcher. I was terrified, unaware that mum was even left alone fighting for her life. Turning to the paramedic, I asked, am I going to die? He casually reassures me that I won't. His next words are what I remember the most as he turns in astonishment to his colleagues and asks, Did he just give me the thumbs up? Apparently I did, before blacking out again. Then there's the moment they cheered in hospital as I remembered where we were going that night, to Mass. I wonder what childhood Mark would think of that when Granny was shoving the wire brush to the soles of our sleepy feet, sending us bolt upright for church, eyeballs frying in an 8am version of the middle of the night. Then there's me asking for a commode in A&E. I had severe bowel problems, one of many unexplained medical complaints at the time, but my frontal lobe was inebriated with severe concussion. And I remember animatedly telling my onlookers and the nurse that if I had three wishes, I'd wish for three suppositories. (laughs) (laughs) The brain goes to funny places in a crisis. Turns out they have much better wishes answered that night. For anyone looking at us from the outside, this is a moment of trauma. I'd be lying if I said that there weren't a lot of fragmented memories still finding their way through the veneer of moving on. Looks and counselling, although we learned to cope with expert advice. Even then, his weekly sessions have taken him to a game club and new friends. And in ICU, we witnessed the lives of people change forever in much less severe circumstances. It tempered our slowly dissolving sense of tragedy as we watched Mum recover with a now magnified gratitude. A skateboarder now paralysed, having slipped on a board in a level footpath. A 20-year-old kid, now a non-communicative quadriplegic, staring at a small screen with a straw. I couldn't tell if the lifeless look in his eyes was because he could see his limited future, or if he could barely see the screen at all three brain damage. The tender arms and words of nurses moved around us like angels in a clinical heaven converted into bricks and mortar. They drifted gently from bed to bed, bringing meaning and positivity, and to the lives of the most vulnerable people I've ever seen outside of my time in a mental health hospital. We don't recognise these selfless angels nearly enough in economic structures that should do so much more than merely sustain them in fiscal survival. The doctor who brought Mum back at the scene is a story in himself. He remains a secret to the public, refusing to accept any recognition or gift from Mum for saving her life. Saving lives is what he does in the unpaid hours of our borrowed time. When our time truly comes, what we will carry into our final seconds are the last eyes that we see, the last good deeds that made other lives easier. No pennies go with us in our passing. No social strata measures our integrity. For many of us, the uniformed arms of clinical angels will confidently hold us, practiced as they are in the unique art of comforting the dying. Those eyes into which our most vulnerable look for one last answer need us now for the first time in their 100-year history. An opportunity to secure their futures with our support would give something back to our angels in the ward before we finally become angels ourselves. Our last thoughts, outside of our loved ones, and that final fulcrum of reflection, can then be that we made a crucial difference in the lives of those who tenderly bear witness and bring honour to so many of us ending our stories on this earth.
0: Thank you so much, Mark. What a brilliant group of health workers. Where would we be without them? And what a reluctant hero that doctor was. Wonderful. And you can hear an equally powerful story from Mark on podcast 238 about mental health. Remember, 10x9 is always free and always will be. But if you want to help with some of our costs, you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal. It really helps, and thanks to everyone who has donated. But as ever, it's more important to us that you sit back, relax and enjoy. OK, on to our third and final story this week, and a change of pace with Nurse Gloria O'Connor, who told this story in February, in the black box, when we teamed up with the Science Festival.
3: Hi, I just want to start off by saying any names used in this story are all fictitious. I have worked with many wonderful nurses over the past 30 plus years, and Lorna was definitely one of the best. She had all of the qualities required to be a great nurse, kindness, compassion, leadership, patience, teamwork, resilience, you name it, and she had that skill or quality. But after working with Lorna for a few months, I made a discovery. It turns out that she had one extra attribute that also made her stand out from the rest. She was what nowadays we would call a shit magnet. <laughs> Someone who for some inexplic- inexplicable reason attracts bad things and events to happen. So basically, if there was an emergency, a drama, or something out of the ordinary happening in the ward, you could be fairly sure that Lorna was in duty. And it wasn't that she caused these things to happen, or was even in any way responsible. She could be working on a different section of the world. But somehow, like a magnet, she just seemed to attract problems. One particular day stands out in my memory, mostly because you would never actually believe that so many extraordinary events could happen in one 12-hour shift. But I can assure you that they did. This particular morning in the busy surgical ward started, as usual, with bed baths and medicine rounds. Lorna and I were working in the same section, and she was giving out medicines when I heard one of the student nurses call her to look at a patient who seemed to be unwell. Lorna lifted the lady's arm to feel her pulse and said in alarm, there's no pulse. She swung round, still holding the wrist, and amazingly, the arm came with her and was now hanging in midair. Lorna was so surprised that she flung the arm from her and it landed on the floor with a resounding crash. Of course, it was an artificial arm, something that the night staff and handover had neglected to mention. (laughs) Luckily, the patient was okay and the arm wasn't damaged, but Lorna was deeply embarrassed and was teased all morning. After finishing the medicine round, she and I went in the consultant ward round. When we entered a side room, We were again met by a patient who looked unwell. Taking no chances this time, Lorna felt for a pulse in both wrists, and then went for the carotid to be sure. (laughs) Finding no pulse, she shouted, cardiac arrest, and while I ran to ring the arrest team, Lorna jumped up in the bed and started CPR with chest compressions. The doctors also sprang to action, and just as the arrest team came running round the corner, the patient opened one eye, looked straight at Lorna, and said in a very aggrieved tone, you're hurting my chest. <laughs> Lunchtime was late that day. But when we finally got away, it was a welcome reprieve from the drama of the morning. But on returning to the ward, we were met with the sight of one of our male patients, Bosco, in the height of the DT, having ripped out his IV line, heading at astonishing speed down the back stairs. Off we went after him as he ran through the very sedate guinea ward on the floor below, dripping blood from his IV site, and with his hospital gown flapping wide open, exposing himself to the horrified patients and scandalized gynae nurses. They were not used to such antics on their quiet, well-run ward. We felt and no doubt looked like something out of a carry-on film. We caught up with Bosco at the bus stop. His pale, bare ass shining like a beacon in the (laughs) fading light of a late winter afternoon. He was trying to get on a bus into town, and time, he said, for the pub's opening. I'm not sure how he was planning to pay for his drinks, because, as with a shroud, there are no pockets in a hospital gown. (laughs) There were a few other small incidents that evening, which I don't even remember now, but handover was delayed, and Lorna and I were very thankful to leave the ward behind and head for home. As we walked through the front hall, we were met by Jimmy, one of the porters, who told us excitedly, there's a woman in labour over there. Now, Jimmy was what could be described as a bit of a take-a-hand. One of his favourite gags was to get into a crowded hospital lift, look straight at you and say, I saw you over at the STD clinic yesterday. Did you, did you get your wee problem sorted out? He would then exit the lift, whistling, leaving you in acute embarrassment, being stared at by complete strangers. (laughs) So we didn't really believe Jimmy about the woman in labor until we heard the, ah, of pain coming from a dimly lit corner of the front hall, where indeed there was a young woman mid-contraction. She was dressed in very bright clothing, and as she lowered herself to the ground in pain, two legs in lurid fluorescent green tights stretched towards us. Lorna and I rushed over to offer help. Although as neither of us had any midwifery training, we asked Jimmy to ring the labor ward for assistance. Jimmy strolled back over to us after making the call. And maybe having a little more insight than we did, remarked, I'm no expert, like, but if you don't take off those tights, that way going nowhere. (laughs) We helped the woman to remove her fluorescent green tight, And sure enough, we were just in time for Lorna to deliver, or rather catch, a healthy baby boy. Luckily for the woman, she had lowered herself to the floor. He might indeed have been a bouncing baby boy. Thankfully, the flying squad from the labor ward also arrived at the same time. And they wrapped the baby to keep him warm, saving us from having to sacrifice one of our coats for the purpose. We left them to their task knowing that mother and baby were in good hands. Tired now and a little giddy from the day's events we made our way towards the car park, feeling that after such a hectic day, surely nothing else could go wrong. Well. (laughs) Just as we were about to part company, a patient who had obviously left his ward to go out for a quick smoke passed us, tripped in the cord of his dressing gown and fell forward onto the floor. He stretched his arms out to break his fall and landed in one arm, which gave an audible crack. Lorna and I looked at each other in disbelief. And it was at that moment that I decided that much as I loved and respected her, I never wanted to work with her again. (laughs) As it turned out, our career paths actually uh, took quite a different path after that time. and We really didn't work with each other very much. Lorna's retired now. And she messaged me recently suggesting that we meet for coffee. I'm still considering it.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much, glorious Nurse Gloria. What a life on the wards. And go get that coffee with Lorna. We might get another story out of it. And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10x9 dates on our website, 10x9.com, including some special events, and keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or a rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10x9 and the 10x9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10x9 happen, Podrick, who makes the brilliant posters, the wonderful people at all our venues, The amazing, warm and generous audiences that turn up wherever we go. And of course, all our storytellers. But especially this week, Jim McGrath, Mark McGrath and Gloria O'Connor. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye.